Thank you, Hilary, for the reading. And I will now try and explain everything. Before we uh, do so, just a reminder, please keep that passage in front of you as we go along. And before I start, let's pray. Heavenly Father, open our hearts and minds by your Spirit this morning. May we be humbled, but also comforted by these truths. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in the film The Imitation Game, part of which I understand was filmed at the vicarage, a great problem is presented. Set during World War II, the film focuses on the fascinating and ultimately successful attempt the Allies made of deciphering the coded messages that the Nazis communicated through the Enigma machine. And in the film, Alan Turing, played by Benedict Cumberbatch, developed a bomb device, not the kind of bomb you're thinking of, and it played a key role in that code-breaking work that was done not too far from here at Bletchley Park. And that work ultimately solved the problem of the Enigma machine because it allowed the Allies to correctly decipher huge amounts of Nazi communication. And most prominent, perhaps, was Operation Fortitude that allowed the Allies such insight into Nazi communication towards the end of the war that it ultimately enabled the successful Normandy beach landings of D-Day that largely brought the war to an end. A great problem and a great solution. And the solution led to a great and joyful victory that brought, brought the end of the war and brought freedom. And in our passage today, we're going to be considering something quite similar. You see, in God's creation of us as human beings, dignified as we are, with moral responsibility, a great problem is presented. And in essence, it's this. How can a perfectly holy God be in right relationship with willfully sinful human beings? How can the two be reconciled? And it's a great problem that requires a great solution. And this is the theme of our passage today. A passage referred to by theologian Dr. Leon Morris as possibly the most important single paragraph ever written. So I hope you're excited to listen in this morning. We're continuing on in our Rags to Righteousness series in Romans. And last week we heard from Jeremy all about the rags. That is, our sin. And that was from the earlier section of chapter 3. And it was a powerful sermon because it told us uncomfortable, yet undeniable truths. We learned that we are sinful in our very nature before a God of blazing holiness and righteousness. And it was explained that as human beings, we don't just commit sins, but rather that we are, in essence, sinful. The late R.C. Sproul was quoted, who helpfully said that we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. We are essentially sinful at the core of our being. Sinful by nature. 
Whether we've committed only small sins, such as the occasional lie or unkind gossip or financial fiddling. Or whether we've committed great sins in relationships or big public sins, in personal conduct or even in private. We know deep down that we've all sinned. And above all, we've certainly broken the greatest commandment Jesus gave of not loving God fully and not loving our neighbour as ourselves. And we may think of others as deep in the pit of sin, down there, whilst, yes, we're sinful, but respectably so. And yet, regardless, the Bible paints the same picture And the stars are equally out of reach for all of us. Verse 22 here picks this up again. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all in the same boat. And this is the problem we're presented with. God is holy. And we are sinful. And there is an infinite gulf between us. A gulf we simply cannot bridge. This brings us to our first point. The righteous God's problem. Now interestingly, the gulf between us and God would seem to be our problem to solve. And indeed, many world religions seek to offer a system that provides a solution to that problem. Such religions try and show us how we can build ourselves back to God. We can bridge the gap through a combination of appeasement offerings, moral striving, religious observance. We can do it, but we can't. And it's actually an insult to the holy nature of God to assume that as sinful beings, we in any way can build a bridge back to him on our own. And yet we ever continue to try. In fact, there are even distortions of the Bible that have held people to this notion. The 16th century German monk Martin Luther was caught in that trap for many years. Striving endlessly to meet the standard he saw that God required in his law. Yet failing at every turn. His pursuit of God through moral striving failed. But the despair that brought him to opened the door for him to receive God's grace. And in many ways, we have Martin Luther to thank for the Reformation. Because through that, through what happened in Europe, as it swept across the channel, it ultimately brought us the Church of England and the Bible in our own language. But on our own, we have this great problem of the gulf between God and man. You see, because of our undeniable sinful natures, as we've seen already, God's righteous character demands that he punish us for our sin. Now, that might be an uncomfortable message, but just consider what you would think of a judge in the high court who was presented with clear evidence of crimes committed by one criminal after another, only to let each of them off without any punishment. There would be outrage. 
the judge would be deemed unfit to serve. And in the same way, God in his righteous and holy nature must punish sin. To not do so would be to undermine his very nature as righteous. You see, we each face the anger of God because in God's court, we are all guilty. In our own legal system, a certain punishment is given to fit the crime. And God's righteous judgment upon us in his court for our crime of sin against him is eternal condemnation. It's a great problem that leaves a great gulf between God and us that, it, that cannot be breached. But the striking truth of the Christian faith, which makes it so unique, is that the Bible presents this great gulf as not so much being our problem as God's problem. And because it is God's problem, God provides the great solution. You see, where we attempt to build a way up to God in trying to solve this great problem, the Christian faith declares, no, don't try and build up, for I have come down, down to humanity to solve this problem myself. For there is at the heart of the universe a righteous God facing the problem of how he can be in a loving, eternal relationship with unrighteous human beings. And so to our second point, the righteous God's solution. You see, our sin is greatly offensive to God. And God's law demands that it is paid for. A bit like someone who owes a great debt to someone else. So too, our sin creates a great debt before God, which requires a payment to be made for it to be taken away. Just this week, Nazanin Zaghari Radcliffe was wonderfully freed, but only after the £400 million debt had been paid. That was the price for her freedom. And there is a similar principle with God. In Hebrews, we read that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So essentially, the punishment that fits the crime of our sin before God is death. The payment owed to pay the debt is blood. But in the gospel, God solves this problem of this blood debt that we owe. He breaches the gulf. And it's right there in verse 25. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood. You see, although we are unrighteous, God has revealed something absolutely incredible. Verse 21, But now, but despite the great problem God has with us from the previous verses of chapter 3, a problem which the law testifies to, Despite that, a righteousness of God has been made known. And it's a righteousness that is not earned, but given. In the face of our rags, we are given righteousness. 
This is the righteous God's solution to his problem. We can't bridge the gulf. We can't pay the debt. God knows this. And it is a great problem. Yes, a problem for us, but also a problem for him. Because God longs in his love to have a right relationship with each of us. And God knows we can't solve this problem. Neither for ourselves, nor for him. And so he solves it himself. And Jesus is God's great solution. His great answer to this problem. Because Jesus pays the penalty that our sin deserves. He dies instead of us. He takes our place. He comes on as our substitute. He pays the debt we cannot pay. He settles our account. Now you might be thinking, why doesn't God just let us off without all this blood being shed? Why all this anger at sin? Well, as sinful beings, we cannot comprehend a holy God fully. But just consider how you often might feel angry when something wrong is done against you. Therefore, consider how much greater it must be for an infinite, eternal, holy God. He can't just overlook sin. For God to overlook sin would show that evil doesn't matter. That what Hitler did doesn't matter. That what Putin is doing doesn't matter. No, God must be the righteous judge of all the earth. And it's such a good thing that he is. And that one day he will punish sin. Because he is righteous. But the problem of our sin is solved through the cross of Christ. Because at the cross, verse 25, God demonstrates that he is a righteous God who must punish sin. But at the cross, God punished sin in Jesus. He punished sin as we see for all time. Those sins committed before that he had left unpunished and those sins committed after. There was a day once a year for the Old Testament Jewish people called the Day of Atonement when God was presented with the sacrifice of an animal in exchange for forgiveness of sin. But it was only ever an illustration because, of course, an animal's sacrifice can't pay for human sin across all time. That Old Testament ritual only pointed to something and its fulfillment was the sacrifice that God presented to himself verse 25, of Jesus. See, at the cross, verse 26, God demonstrated his righteous solution to his great problem. Remember the problem? Verse 26, how can a holy God stay true to himself as just and righteous whilst restoring sinful human beings to a right relationship with him? How can God be both just and justify us? That word that makes us just as if I'd never sinned. How? 
through the cross. That's what the big word justification is all about. For at the cross and at the cross alone, God is able to maintain the integrity of his righteousness in punishing sin because he punishes Jesus in your place as your substitute. His blood is shed instead of yours. And at the cross, God demonstrates his perfect righteousness in providing his perfect solution to this great problem. As the carol goes, God and sinners reconciled. Or in the words of the late John Stott, at the cross, God himself gave himself to save us from himself. Now, you might be listening here today or online, and you know that you're not yet a Christian. Now, your problem is in one sense your sin. But your final problem is God. You see, your sin is a problem because of who it offends and how God will punish it. I mean, what are we going to do with our sin when we meet God, if we've rejected the cross, if we've rejected his solution, if we've rejected the death of his beloved son for us, what do we think God's going to do with us in eternity? Do you think he'll look at us in our rags and find us acceptable? Do you think he would have had his only son killed if there was any other way? Now, we will one day stand before a God of blazing holiness in sinful rags. And on that day, our one pound coin will not pay our trillion pound debt. We need to receive God's solution. And so finally, the righteous God's gift. Now, it's nice to receive gifts, isn't it? But sometimes it can be a bit of a struggle. Perhaps we feel like they humble us too much for our own liking. Perhaps when every Christmas you're given loads of deodorant. Perhaps we feel gifts make a statement about us that we don't like. They say something perhaps about a need that's perceived. But there are some gifts we must receive if we are to live. Now some of you may give blood, which is a good thing to do. And that blood's then stored away for a time when the gift of that blood might very well save someone's life. Now we're in a similar situation. We need the blood of another in order to live eternally and not die eternally. We need the blood of Jesus to be made righteous. And God offers it as a gift to you today. The blood of his only son. Jesus' death for you at the cross, that you might be forgiven. And it's a wonderful gift. You see, by receiving God's gift of righteousness, it's not the God that then just lets us off with a pardon, which is a bit more negative, but rather that in the gospel, God so fully accepted the payment he presented himself in Jesus 
that it's impossible for God to make a case against us anymore. His justice cannot exert itself towards our sin anymore. Justice has been fully met. The debt's been fully paid. And so far from the gospel only saying, go, you're forgiven, God declares in the gospel, come. Come, you're mine. You've been justified before me and by me. You've been made right with me. You've been made righteous in my sight. I've solved both your problem and mine. You've been paid for. You've been bought. The blood of my son has ransomed you. Come to me. See, at the cross, the righteous God solves his problem through the gift of righteousness through his son. And what we see at the cross is Jesus willingly and lovingly submitting to his Father's plan for your salvation so that you can be in right relationship with God forever if you will receive that. Because the Father loves you. Because he loved you, he planned it. Because Jesus loves you, he did it. Because the Spirit loves you, he works within So let's not stubbornly determine to face the righteousness of God on our own. Let's not try and foolishly solve God's problem for him. We'll only be burned up in judgment. No, rather, let's come in humility and bow before him and receive the gift of his grace in Jesus. Well, I hope that softens your heart and moves you this morning. Because if it doesn't, I think you should be worried about where you are spiritually. But if this has moved you, then come to Christ. Perhaps come for the first time. And if so, how wonderful. But perhaps it's a coming afresh to God. A renewing of your love for him, even if you've been walking with him for many years. Today would be a wonderful time to do that as well. But maybe you're thinking, I want to receive this righteousness. I want this gift. How do I receive it? And the answer is there in verses 22 and 25. By faith. By faith alone. Or in the Latin, sola fide, as the great reformation doctrines taught us you see we don't bring anything we don't work together with God it's not about some sort of cooperation but only receiving it's a free gift which we cannot pay for and it's a free gift for us precisely because it was so costly for God it's quite literally priceless And to receive this gift of God's righteousness is utterly life-changing. It's a gift that unites all people before God and under God. For God offers it to all because it's needed by all. For we're all sinners in need of God's grace, verse 23. So this gift humbles us because it says something about us 
It declares a deep need within each of us that only the gospel can meet. Because only in the gospel can we be made righteous. For it's the solution to a problem that we cannot solve. So the gospel is a leveller. And therefore, verse 27, there's no boasting. No boasting. Only humility and thanks to God. For God, verse 30, is the one and only God of all. And the greatness of our faith is only ever great because of who our faith is in. And verse 31, to receive God's gift of righteousness will lead to holy lives. For as we turn and receive, we also turn and follow. We uphold the righteous law of God by seeking to live for him. God's gift of righteousness received will lead to a life that lives in that direction. Not to earn God's favour, that's already won. But because we will long to live lives that declare this glorious gospel to the world, that declare our identity and status as children of the Father and servants of the King. You see, the cancel culture righteousness of so much of today is a false righteousness of man that's full of hypocrisy and completely devoid of grace. God's gift of righteousness is completely different, both in his essence and what it does to us, because it's a gift that makes us humble and holy. And where social media tries people in its court of woke, God's people are never cancelled by him. Well, solving the problem of the Nazi Enigma machine ultimately brought about a great victory during World War II. But as with all victories over war in human history, other wars would come, just as we so sadly see right now in the Ukraine. But in the gospel, the war with God is finally and forever over. The great, timeless, universal problem has been solved by God himself for all who come to him. Once in rags before God, now gifted righteousness by him. For here we see the righteous God's problem, the righteous God's solution, and the righteous God's gift. May we receive it today. And to him be the praise and glory forevermore. Amen.